Ideas have consequences. You say them long enough, people start to believe them and they start to live them. The first one on the list that I want to point out for us, the consequences of what Marx and Engels had, had said about the family is Eleanor Marx herself. She lived out a model of relationship that her father had promoted. She fell in love with a man, Edward Aveling, and lived with him, even though he was still legally married to another woman at the time. And uh, eventually, here's the problem, she lived with him for about 14 years, but eventually he secretly married another 22-year-old woman and left her. And instead of this being a free marriage where, you know what, we're just drifting apart, let's go our separate ways. No, her heart was completely broken. This goes back to last week. Sex is not free. Sex comes with consequences. She said to one of her friends, one cannot wipe out 14 years of one's life as if they had not been. And she's right. And even though eventually he came back to her, she was so devastated that she committed suicide. This is where such freedom leads. There's no such thing as a free marriage apart from commitment and covenant. Secondly, just for a moment, I want to look at communist governments themselves and how this played out in places like Russia, where Alexandra Kolontai, Commissar of Social Welfare, said something like this, there is no escaping the fact the old type of family has seen its day. It is worse than useless since it needlessly holds back the female workers from more productive and more, far more serious work. I'm not going to pronounce his name right, but this man was the leading Soviet urban planner under Lenin and Stalin. His name was Leonid Sobsovich. I'm sorry if you're Russian. I probably just massacred that name. He insisted that since the child should be and was the property of the state rather than the family, the state had the right to compel parents to turn over their offspring to specially designed children's towns needed to be built at a distance from the family. China, of course, and their one-child policy, if you had a second child, you were, or if you were pregnant with a second child, there were forced abortions. There were such things as fines, imprisonment, forced sterilization. Back in 2008, this came to a head with an earthquake that wiped out 5,335 children and sparked such outrage from citizens in China who were only allowed to have one child, and their one child was completely wiped off the map. And of course, what did China do? What could they do? Shut down social media, censor the internet to make sure that these people who are outraged would not share their outrage and start a riot and an uprising in communist China. Cambodia, again, we talked about the forced evacuations. Families were separated Children separated from their parents and forced to commit atrocities. Sexual revolution, not going to spend any time there. That's review, but it needs to be noted again that as we move forward, this kind of notion gets into the free love market of the 1960s and so on. And free marriage and group marriage, all of that is seen. All of it comes from that Darwinian evolutionary theory 
that idea that there's a social evolution. Black Lives Matter, back to here again. We mentioned this the other day, but I want to notice again that they are not just out for social justice. They say, again, I'm going to read, it's been said already, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages, there it is, communist term, that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree, notice who's missing, that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Notice who's missing. And I want to pay attention to who's missing because fatherlessness is one of the great consequences of these ideas. And one of the reasons that there is so much social unrest and injustice in our world. And in fact, if you don't mind, I'm going to quote President Obama himself from a very famous 2008 Father's Day speech that he gave at the Apostolic Church of God in Chicago. He said this, You and I know how true this is in the African-American community. We know that more than half of all black children live in single-parent households, a number that has doubled, doubled since we were children. We know the statistics that children who grow up without a father are five times more likely, listen to these statistics, five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of schools, and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. They are more likely to have behavioral problems or run away from home or become teenage parents themselves, and the foundations of our community are weaker because of it. By the way, Netflix... I don't know who produced it, but Netflix is coming out with a movie uh, very soon on this very subject to tackle this very problem. Again, Hollywood can tackle the problems and they have great insight into the problems at times, but they don't have great insight into the solution. But from what I can tell from reviews that I'm reading of the, uh, the movie called Fatherhood, starring Kevin Hart, it looks like it may have some redeeming qualities to it and... Uh, Sounds like it's very heart-wrenching, but it's on this subject. President Obama said, yes, we need more cops on the street. Yes, we need fewer guns in the hands of people who shouldn't have them. Yes, we need more money for our schools and more outstanding teachers in the classroom and more after-school programs for our children. Yes, we need more jobs and more job training and more opportunity in our communities. But we also need families to raise our children. We need fathers to realize that responsibility does not end at conception. Unfortunately, with all due respect, President Obama was pushing a view on society that was against this whole idea that we do need fathers. But Marxism will not get us there. Mary Eberstadt, a well-known journalist or, or writer in the United States, says six decades of social science have established that the most efficient way to increase dysfunction is to increase fatherlessness. And this the United States has done for two generations now. Almost one in four children, doesn't matter what skin color, almost one in four children today grows up without a father in the home. Folks, that is heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. I've heard stories from coworkers of, who have split up from their wives and from the mothers of their children who have told me of their kids wishing, saying, 
they wished their parents lived under the same roof. But our society is being overwhelmed. Talk about a pandemic. One in four. And of course, that leads to national chaos. Why is fatherlessness encouraged? You know that, again, quite a few of the social justice movement authors grew up in fatherless homes. There's a rage against fathers. Why do you think that BLM statement missed fathers? Didn't put them in there. They're irrelevant. Why are divorces made such an easy escape hatch from commitment in our culture? Why promote turning children against parents over gender change therapy to create national chaos? So riots, Antifa, BLM, protests, pumping fists, and so on, tearing down statues, many of them for no other crime than they're just a founding father figure. Is the result of built-up anger from domestic atrocities. Paul told Timothy in the early church that this would be the case. He said, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulties, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Much of this in our time is a result and an outcome of Marxist ideology and Darwinian ideology as well. The cultural weapons that are used, just going to name them very quickly. The first one is feminism and the degrading of family life. Culture teaches you, mothers, that to live as a wife and a mother is lesser of you. You are stooping to that level. You're not living up to your full potential by going there. Gloria Steinem, a famous feminist, said, we have to abolish and reform the institution of marriage. By the year 2000, well, she was wrong, but she tried. We will, I hope, raise our children to believe in human potential, not God. We must understand what we are attempting is a revolution, not a public relations movement. I still remember when my wife uh, made the very difficult decision after a lot of prayer and a lot of uh, talking and so on to step out of her role in the nursing world to raise our children full time and to focus on that. I can tell you today we can look back at this point without any regret that we made that decision. But in her giving the news in that environment, in the nursing world, well, some were encouraging, but many of them looked at her as though she had three eyeballs. You're doing what? What would make you think of doing something like that? But Proverbs 31 proves otherwise, that an excellent wife, who can find? Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. He says, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Tell you, that's something that doesn't come from the working world. It comes 
from the home, from the family. But feminism has preached a gospel, a cultural gospel for a long time that says, ladies, don't stoop to that level. We have good news for you. You can be free of that bondage. You can be free of it. And of course, what comes out of that are two adults. Now, I'm not suggesting tonight that two people cannot work in the home. Please do not take that. There are lots of ways to do it. But what I am suggesting tonight, what I'm doing more than suggesting, what I am saying tonight unapologetically from Scripture is that parents, you prioritize your children. They are your first mission in life. The woman in Proverbs 31 was an industrious woman. She worked. She provided. She made a profit. She did all of those things. But at the end of the day, her children praised her. Why? She made them a priority. She focused on them. She was a mother. Feminism says, no, that's bondage. Secondly, the media's redefinition of a family. Many, many ways now that uh, it's being redefined. I'm not going to go into that. We talked about technology the other night. Of course, one show that comes to mind is the ABC sitcom Modern Family. The nuclear family in the show, right? It's, it's a patriarch who's married to a very young wife, and then there's, he's got, I think, a son who's in a homosexual marriage, and he's got a daughter in a, uh, a nuclear family situation. Of course, the nuclear family is laughable. Everything they do is ridiculous and chaotic. And, of course, the family with the two dads is reasonable and loving and so on. It's the new standard the new nuclear family. They're redefining the family. And of course, at first, people are shocked, and then eventually it's just normal. We don't even care anymore. In fact, we might switch it on and laugh ourselves and think it's funny. God's not laughing, folks. Third, cultural undermining of parental authority. Like the, Van, the parents in Vancouver who discovered their child. I believe in 2019, had been counseled at her high school to undergo gender reassignment treatment and testosterone shots. Authorities were actually guiding the child without her parents' consent to life-changing procedures. And according to BC law, think about this, according to law in British Columbia, physicians are allowed to perform medical procedures or prescribe drugs without parental consent or knowledge. The father sued the government. The judge ruled in favor of the child and the government, saying, notice this, he didn't just say, hey, you're wrong. No, he said that if the, child, if the father continued to refer to his daughter's birth pronouns, it constituted family violence. It's kind of like the Marxist language of exploitation. You're exploiting your child. Yes, the judge said it constituted family violence and he was liable for prison. I don't even know the dad's name, uh, but he said this, when the bubble explodes and the delusion ends, I cannot imagine his heartbreak. He said, when the bubble explodes and the delusion ends, she can never go back to being a girl in the healthy body she would have had. These kids don't understand. What kind of 13-year-old is thinking about having a family and kids? And yet the dad has no power to do anything about it. The culture is undermining parental authority. I know it's happening here in the high school systems where now uh, high school kids can actually change their gender pronouns at school without their parents knowing. At least it came up last year. I don't exactly know what the outcome of that was. But I know it came up last year and it was an issue within the school system. 
The last one, obviously, public education. Again, not going to spend much time. That's an obvious. Uh, but it has turned from education to indoctrination. And the more I'm studying this, the more I'm seeing it. Um, and just things that have been happening this year, just in our own home life, have been making it very evident as well. Um, that there is an indoctrination that is clearly going on and it is determined towards an outcome. Well, the family unit is crucial for cultural preservation. So I want to give you a few things and then we're going to get into Scripture and look at some exhortation about how you and I, in our family units, whatever they might be, and some of you, I'm not sure, you have extended family, you have nieces, nephews, you have grandkids and so on, you have others within the church family that you have been an influence on or a father figure to. There are single mothers, there are single parents who need that kind of support. This is for all of us. And tonight as we go through that, I, I hope that you'll be able to apply many of these lessons and scriptures to your own situation, wherever that is. And that can only be by the Holy Spirit. He's the one who applies and, and convicts truth in our hearts. But first of all, I just want to take a quick moment to notice that the family unit is crucial for the culture. First of all, because it does determine the future of a nation. Caesar Augustus, the emperor that was uh, on, uh, well, not on the throne, but ruling the Roman Empire during uh, Jesus' birth, at one point recognized that because of the Roman Empire's view of the family and because there was all this promiscuity and people were not so interested. In fact, they were, they were actually more interested in their pets than they were in their kids. Like their kids, they thought nothing of them. When they died, thought nothing of them. Uh, but when their pets died, they gave them these elaborate burials and so on. And they would just dote on their, on their animals, their pets, and treat their kids like slaves. And then they just had no ambition to have children. But the, Caesar Augustus realized that this was a danger to the nation itself. Because if there's no children, there's no future. There was little incentive to get married, little incentive to stay committed. So recognizing what was coming economically and for national security, he actually outlawed adultery. He outlawed sexual immorality. He outlawed homosexuality under penalty of flogging or death. And he imposed taxes on people who stayed single or couples who remained childless. Well, it didn't work out. People didn't, it kind of ignored it, laughed it off. It didn't work out, which again, is just a reminder that the government can't change hearts, only the gospel can. The only way this did change, folks, by the way, was through the church. One family at a time, presenting what it looked like to be in a nuclear family that was glued together by love, that reflected the love of God. That was the way society over centuries was influenced through that structure and hearts were changed. Others were converted and brought to the gospel. Secondly, uh, essential for resisting, it's essential for resisting totalitarianism. With all the pressure around us today, it is more important than ever that we focus on raising our children, 
Rod Dreher said, the traditional Christian family is not merely a good idea, it is also a survival strategy for the, fam, for the faith in a time of persecution. Christians should stop talk, taking family, pardon me, taking family life for granted, instead approaching it in a more thoughtful, disciplined way. We cannot simply live as all other families live, except that we go to church on Sunday. Holding correct theological beliefs and having the right intentions will not be enough. Christian parents must be intentionally countercultural in their approach to family dynamics. The days of living like everyone else and hoping our children turn out for the best are over. The indoctrination is all around us. They're going to face it at one point or the other. And it's up to us to be intentional. Next, reflection of God's glory in the gospel. I have to go through these quite quickly, um, but here they are. How does the family, the Christian family, reflect God's glory in the gospel? It's a great witness tool. First of all, God designed it. He's the creator of it. We mentioned that already. Secondly, it reflects the Trinity. The relationship between father and son, when father before he goes to, or when the son before he goes to the cross says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Since you have given the son authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Notice the loving relationship going on, that even in his very last breath, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That relationship was unbroken at the cross. And in our families, as we develop relationships between us, husband and wife, father, son, mother, daughter, parent, child, whatever it is, as we develop those relationships, we are reflecting the Trinity, the very nature of God. Next, the idea of adoption. That's a New Testament gospel term. Paul tells us in Romans 8, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Well, how did that happen? Because we were once rebels. We had turned against God. None of us were born sons of God. For you did not receive, Paul says, the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, that's the Hebrew term for daddy. It's a child's term for just wanting to be close to their father. The Greek term, father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Well, that's a great gospel reality that when you come to faith in Christ, you have become a son or a daughter of God. You have come into his family as a prince or a princess Kings and queens, you've been adopted. You don't deserve it, but you are now a son and you'll never be removed from the family. Next, prayer. Again, Jesus used descriptions of father, child, and asking your father. Matthew 6, he made it very clear. Pray to your father. Don't pray like the hypocrites, those religious men. What are they missing when they pray? They're missing a relationship between child and father. They're missing that relationship that just says, I just want to be near you because you're my dad. They were missing that. No, they're praying, God, I'm thankful that I'm not like other sinners out there. Look at me, I'm pretty impressive. And I want to impress you so that I can bribe you so that you will let me, you will have to let me into heaven because I'm so righteous and so holy. 
That's not a loving relationship. But Jesus taught very differently. We pray to our Father who is in secret. We don't need it to be known. And how do we address him? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Here's another one, forgiveness and reconciliation. The family unit reflects this. Committed relationships require this on a daily basis. A whole family of sinners living under one roof. What do you think is going to happen? And covenant relationships mean we have to work it out. We have to forgive. What does that mean? Let go of the obligation of things and reconcile with the other. And finally, it is crucial for cultural preservation because it is your first mission as a disciple. Your first mission. Paul made it very clear to Timothy that one of the priorities for knowing whether an individual and man could be an elder in the church and lead God's family was that his household had to be intact. He said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So in other words, if you're doing wonderful at your ministry in the church, but your family's a disaster, there's something wrong. I came from a ministry structure before that at one point uh, pressured in different ways myself as a young man and as a young dad to leave my wife and kids and travel places and visit churches and stay there for weeks on end and, and minister to that church. I had a generation before me of mentors who said, don't do it. Because many of them, by their own admission, had lost, at least in their viewpoint, had lost their families because they were absentee fathers in the home. But there were others who justified it and said, yeah, but we're serving the Lord. It was almost like a badge of honor. We're serving the Lord. And I, I know that, that can be common in different church movements and so on. Thankfully, it's not like that anymore. And uh, it was verses like this that really convicted me to say, you can't do this. You cannot do this. You can go broke before you do this. Because if I'm absent as a father in my home, I have no business ministering to God's people. And that goes with waving signs at protests. Nothing wrong with that, folks. But what I want us to get our minds around is where the priority lies. You want to change culture? You want to be an influence on culture? Lead your families. Raise them in the fear of God. Show them the beauty of the gospel. Show them how attractive it is compared to all of these false gospels that lead nowhere but to suicide and chaos. Show them. Focus on your family. That is a cultural statement that has power. 
that will last for generations to come. You are, just like we heard on Sunday, you are planting seeds, sowing to the Spirit, doing good. Yes, it's tiring, but doing good because it has eternal value. Focus on it. All right, here we go. A playbook for the vertical family, and first I'm going to pick on the dads, myself included. The order of this is individuals before couples or groups. The gospel works on us individually before bringing us together to function as a collective body of Christ, right? We must be converted before joining the church in ministry. And then the gospel continues to work on us in both dimensions, both individually and collectively. So here we are. We have already noted that we have a fatherlessness crisis in our culture. And while it is true that we might still be under, I might be under my roof with my kids and my wife, the mother of my children, while that might be true, it's very subtle because I could assume that because all of that is true, then I am being a good father. But if I'm being a passive father, if I'm being a go ask your mom, I don't care father, if I'm coming home at night and saying, you know what, I'm going to watch TV because I deserve it because I'm stressed out, father, then the crisis continues. Not only that, but many fathers, because of our culture and because of feminism and because of what is being said, are discouraged in a little bit of despair. The kids are being taught, you don't need to respect your dad. Your dad's just out to oppress you. He just wants to control you. You want to live a good life? Get out from under your dad's authority. And maybe that's where you're at tonight. You're just discouraged. It is tiring. Well, the first thing, uh, it looks harsh, but it's actually good. Repent and get up. <laughs> Repentance is a good term. It's a gospel term. When I'm down, if I've been running a race and I'm exhausted and I've fallen on my face, what does repentance tell me? It says I need a change of mind. I need a change of heart. I need a change of direction. That the way I'm going is not right. James said in James 4, but he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Repentance is a change of heart. It's time to get up, dads. It's time to lead our families without apology. It's time to confess our sins to our kids if we have been too controlling and too overbearing. It's time to let them know we may not know exactly what we're doing, but above everything else, we need to show up. We need to be in the lives of our children. We need to lead them by example. Secondly, 
This is very important. Before we lead our kids, we love and pursue our wife. Love and pursue your wife. I've told my kids often, the best thing I could ever do for you is love your mom. There's nothing that makes children feel safer than knowing that mom and dad love each other. And so Ephesians 5, the challenge is husbands, love your wives. Think of what Paul was writing into. We've talked about that already tonight. A pagan world that believed that dad was king. He was lord of his household and wives were just assets. Paul says, no, they're not. Love your wives, husbands, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This idea of sacrificial love was completely countercultural. And the pursuit, the, the, the pursuit of this example, that Jesus might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the, the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Let me ask you tonight, husbands, do you pursue your wife this way? There are times when the bride of Christ is hard to look at. And you just have to look in your own heart to see that. Has Jesus stopped pursuing his bride? Has he stopped trying to sanctify her, cleanse her with his word, that he might present her in splendor without spot and wrinkle and any such thing? Love and pursue your wife. Don't stop. And tonight, if there's an issue with that, that you're resisting right now, it's time to repent. There's no excuses for this. This is gospel truth. This is the example. Jesus loving the unlovable. Pursue your wife. That might require some help. That might require some support. That's why we have men's groups and small groups to hold each other accountable. But we are told by Peter Again, in a world where wives were treated as slaves to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Again, culturally speaking, not only physically weaker, but in society, she was socially weaker. She had less rights than the man. And Peter was telling the man, show honor to her. She has rights in your home because of Christ. Since he said, they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Don't expect to have a good relationship with God if you are not pursuing your wife above everything else. Along with that, shepherd and discipline your kids. Proverbs 22, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. That's just a fact. We don't come in the world knowing exactly what to do in every situation. Wisdom is far from a child's heart. Johnny, don't climb that tree. You're going to break your leg. I know of one child in our family that we told not to touch the fireplace, the glass. It worked for a while until it didn't. And uh, there was some pain involved. That's reality, right? One of the greatest ways to discipline children is with reality. Teach them that in the real world, ideas have consequences. Actions have consequences. We don't bail out our kids from every trouble that they have. We let them fall and scrape their knee. 
We want them to learn by reality that certain things lead to certain ends. Train up a child, Proverbs 22 again, in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Again, that's a general principle. It's not a guarantee because we do live in a broken world, but do everything you can to train up a child in the way that he should go. And of course, Solomon talking to his son in Proverbs 3, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. You know the difference between discipline and punishment? Punishment just seeks to hurt. Like I'm gonna get you for what you did and I'm mad. Discipline? Discipline, the motivation is love and it seeks to teach. It's very different. Always needs to come in the context of relationship, in the context of teaching. Shepherd and discipline your kids. You don't negotiate with them, especially when they're terrible twos. That's the time when they learn what no means. You teach them what no means. Discipline and lead or shepherd your kids. Uh, we'll get into a little bit more of that a little bit later, so I'm not going to keep going with that. Next, lead and teach. Lead and teach your family. Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God, listen to this, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. What are we going to do with that? And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them the words now that you love so passionately with all your soul, heart, and might. You shall teach them diligently to your children. When will I do that? You'll talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorpost of your house and on your gates. In every opportunity, take the time to teach your kids about the goodness of God. Everything, everything they're facing in life, their fears, their worries, use it to turn them to Christ. Use them as gospel opportunities. Show them that all of that is taken care of in Christ. He is the answer to every issue. Show them what the corruption is in their hearts. Use every opportunity, sitting, lying down, bedtime, morning time, breakfast, dinner, whatever it is. One common thing is just make sure your dinner table is a time when your family is together or some other hallowed time during the day when your family is together, it needs to happen where you can talk as a family and use those moments to teach. Well, that's it for dads. I hope that wasn't too hard. Was that too hard? I'm not going to apologize, but here we go. Uh, mothers. The first thing for mothers is to resist the culture's lies. We've already looked at what feminism is saying, and Paul says, don't be conformed to the false gospel of feminism, to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Don't listen to what Gloria Steinem is saying. Listen to what Proverbs 31 is saying. Resist the culture's lies. Secondly, show respect to your husband. Now, this is a deeper study. I realize there are specific cases of abuse and so on. I'm not speaking about those right now. But again, the general principle at this point, Paul speaks of the fact that in Ephesians 5, and he also speaks about in Colossians 3, I believe, um, that the man is the head of the home and wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
Obviously, that is outside of the boundaries of sin. That does not include uh, acts where he wants his wife to sin or commit acts of sin, uh, but she is to submit and respect his headship. Verse 33 of Ephesians 5, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And time does not permit, but um, it can be proven that that is a created need within a heart, the heart of a man. I bet if I asked most men, we asked this in the pre-marriage classes, but if I asked most men here tonight, if uh, the, the lady of your dreams, your girlfriend, your fiance, your wife were to send you a card, would you rather she said, I love you with all my heart or I respect you with all my heart? And I imagine that most men in this room, a high percentage of you would say, I'd rather she said she respects me with all her heart. Men desire respect. Paul speaks into that. Let the woman, let the wife see that she respects her husband. More goes into that, but the fact that the man is the head of the home, again, reflects the nature of God. 1 Corinthians 11, that just as the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Well, that's interesting because Christ and God are equal. Christ is God, but they obviously act and play in different roles within the Trinity, and that includes headship. God has given different roles to the man and to the woman. Next, nurture and teach your kids. Mothers, do you know that the kings that were listed in the Old Testament? Quite often, I guess it's a given that we know who the father was, but most often, if not always, when the king is named and such and such took the throne and his mother, mother's name was, and her name is given. I can't prove this, but I do wonder, because I've asked myself, why is that? Seems peculiar to me. I do wonder if it has to do with the fact that whether that king turned out to be good or bad on the throne had a lot to do with the influence, the nurture, the teaching, the care of the mother in his life. If you ever get a chance to read about Jonathan and Charles Edwards, their mother was a hero of the faith. And they contributed, attributed a lot of their leanings and their spiritual fervor and passion to their mother who taught them the word of God. Nurture and teach your kids. Focus on it. Paul reminded Timothy of this. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now I am sure dwells in you as well. Well, what did they teach? What was this? 2 Timothy 3 he elaborates on it and says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Mothers are often attributed with spiritual influence on their children. The last one is be a mother in Israel. What does that term mean? Well, it comes from Judges 5. Of course, it has to do with Deborah, who after the victory 
over Sisera. Uh, she was singing a song. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. She stood up for the greater community. She stood up as a mother. You've heard of Mama Bear, right? Looking out for the interests of others. And so Paul again taught, told Titus in Titus 2 that older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Does that mark you as an example for young women to follow, to teach how to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands? There's the respect word. And that the word of God may not be reviled. Mothers in Israel those in the community that can be looked up to as godly women of the faith who've raised their own children and are mentors to others as well. That's what we should be striving for. Well, here we go. Parents, first of all, pursue each other. This goes back to the whole idea that the, the, the basic need for children in the home is that mom and dad love each other. So what takes priority? You want to be a good parent? Nurture your marriage. If that's a problem, go home tonight as a couple. Or if it's your husband or your wife, they're at home. Say, look, if we want to raise our kids well, we're ignoring something. There's something in our way. We need to work on our marriage. There's help for that. You can reach out for help for that. Um, but we need this. This is priority. Think of Song of Solomon you know, just the, again, God put an entire book about married love into his word. I know we get a little giddy around it, but God isn't giddy about it. I mean, it's, it's his word. He created this and it's beautiful. Come, my beloved, let us go into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. What is he doing? He's taking her away. Sometimes you have to do that. You want to be good parents? Get away as a couple, right? Nurture your marriage. You can't just be focused on co-parenting. And then when the kids move out, there's an empty nest and you look across the table and you say, I'm not sure who you are. And you, the, it hasn't been developed. That intimacy is not there anymore. Parenting 101, nurture your marriage. Make sure your kids understand Actually, this leads to the second one. I'll, I'll say this now. Talk with each other. Again, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, kind. Love does not envy or boast. There are times for arguments, yes, but please speak with each other. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. By the way, Paul wrote this to a very dysfunctional church family. The Corinthians were at each other's throats. And Paul wrote into that with this, with this great chapter of love, but it was written into a war zone. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Guard your time as a couple. Make sure to teach your kids that it keeps them safe, 
that you have a good and healthy marriage. Let them know that mommy and daddy need their time alone. Talk about how you need to teach and discipline your children. It doesn't just come naturally. It requires strategy. Study parenting together. Just continually be in communication with each other. It's not always easy. But this, again, is how we sow to the Spirit, as we heard on Sunday. Next, focus on the heart. I got a little picture there that tries to illustrate what Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. What are we looking for as parents? Again, I, I already made this statement about parenting. Sometimes we can be so focused on controlling behavior, but that's not what we are supposed to be focused on if we are gospel-centered parents. If we are on mission for the glory of God, while most parenting focuses on behaviors, the behavior is a symptom. It's not the root. It's not the cause. So we spend all this time, go to your room. Say please, right? All those things that we do. I do them too. I have to continually check myself and say, okay, did I connect with my child's heart in this situation? Because here's what happens. Behaviors are at the end of the stream. That's what he's saying. Out of the heart flow the springs of life. Now, springs were life-giving to the ancient Near East, the ancient world, right? They guarded their springs in their cities because if the enemy closed off those springs, the people inside would, would go thirsty, right? They would die, dehydrated. And that's the language that the writer is using. Out of it flow springs of life. So the behaviors come out of those springs. Those springs flow from what we're going to say are thoughts. Thoughts lead to behaviors, right? So the behaviors come from, why did you, what were you thinking? Right? So we can sit down with our kids and we can have a conversation with them. What were you thinking that led you to the conclusion that taking the car out at 12 years old was a good idea? What were you thinking? Or what were you thinking when you threw that baseball at the back of your brother's head? Right? And you get to the heart of what was going on, what they were thinking. What does that lead to? Well, it leads to what was going on inside the springs that are deep, deep, deep inside the mountain. Right, That's where the springs are. You can't see them, but that's where the water is cold and fresh and so on. We only see what flows out of it, but it all comes from the desires of the heart. So the behavior leads us to thoughts. Those thoughts lead us to the desires of the heart. When we figure that out, when we understand what's going on in the heart of our children, and quite often it's the desires within a corrupt heart, which leads us to the gospel again and the need for Christ and so on. Um, but again, this is where we need to be focused. Focus on the heart of the matter. We still need to discipline. We still need to give real consequences for behaviors. But at the same time, we need to be talking with our kids and getting to the heart of what is going on inside them. And then get on mission with each other. A mission-focused marriage is a healthy marriage. I think of this example of Prisca and Aquila, who Paul says were my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. 
Together they risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. So they had also opened up their home to the church to be able to gather inside their home. This was a mission-focused marriage. These two together were focused. They were actually the ones who took Apollos aside at one point and educated him, kind of led him into the finer points of the gospel and actually made him a better preacher. It was this couple together mentoring a preacher. Remember, your first mission is your, is your home. Your first mission field, before you go to Africa, before you go to South America, before you go to Russia or China or wherever you plan to go, your first mission field is your home. All right. Well, we've, we've uh, given the adults enough grief. We're going to look at the kids. Young adults, wherever you are, I'm still a kid of my parents, you know, um, sons, daughters. Uh, the first one we want to look at is the idea of humbling yourself. This is tough to do. I am thankful for all the young people that are here. I think that's great. The future is bright and I'm really encouraged by that. Something happens along the way as kids start growing up and it's natural. It's supposed to happen that they gain little by little independence over time. And as parents, we need to be able to discern when to start giving that independence and judging by their character. Okay, can they handle this? Can they not handle it? If they take this, will they fall flat on their face? Sometimes we have to love them enough to let them fall flat on their face to get their attention. But as children, as sons, as daughters, it can be very difficult, especially when we get into our teenage years, it can be very difficult to stay the kid in the home. And while we're raising adults and we want our kids to grow up to be adults, there's still that restriction. There's, there's the now and the not yet, and there's that tension between the two. And teenagers are becoming adults. They're growing. Boys are becoming men. Girls are becoming women, and they're growing. They're preparing to be fathers and mothers and to take headship and lead in their own families and so on. But if they're still under my roof, they're still under my headship, there needs to be a sense of humility. And Peter talked about that more in the sense of the church family, but it's true in all aspects. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And in this case, it applies to parents. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Listen, I'm just going to suggest to the young people tonight, you've never parented before. You've never parented before. You don't know better than your parents. Because I can guarantee you, because I was one of them, I thought I could parent better than my parents too but I hadn't parented before. And now that I have parented, I have a whole new respect for my parents. I have a whole new appreciation for the decisions they had to make while I was growing up and the rules they set on me as a teenager that I didn't always like or accept. I had to humble myself. I didn't always do that well. And the Holy Spirit had to get a hold of my heart. And I'm calling you today. If that's your role in the family, first of all, be marked by humility. You may think that you'll do it better. I can assure you, I can assure you from where I'm standing, it's harder than it looks. 
go a long way if you support your parents in what they're trying to do and the difficult decisions they have to make. Secondly, obey them. And this is by way of supporting. The fifth commandment of all the ten rules that God gave to a nation that was being birthed, that he had just redeemed to himself. He was their king. He was setting out how this nation would run. And number five, in fact, number one in the horizontal commandments, the first four had to do vertically with how we relate to God. The fifth one, the first one that has to do with how we relate to each other was honor your father and your mother that your day may be long, your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That says something about the priority God has for the health of a family and how that relays, how that leads to the health of a society. That as families break up, the nation breaks up. And so Ephesians 6, after Paul is done speaking and addressing husbands and wives, he then speaks to children and says, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. You want to live long in the land? Stay under your parents' headship, authority, obey your parents. Next, choose your friends wisely. So go a long way with where you end up in life. I can look back to friendships I had in my teenage years that influenced me for good, and I'm thankful to God for that. I can't say that I orchestrated it or somehow manufactured that. God brought healthy friends into my life who led me in a good direction, and hopefully I did the same for them. Choose your friends wisely. Your friends will influence where you end up. Proverbs 27, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Choose faithful friends that will be willing to speak truth into your life, even if it hurts. I know that applies to all of us, but especially to young people who are struggling with, I don't want to be rejected, and I want to be in a certain crowd for certain reasons and certain status and so on. Choose your friends wisely. Choose friends who are going to lead you closer to Jesus. You will never go wrong with that. You will never regret it. And I can say in the opposite extent, because I've seen it in life over and over again, you choose friends unwisely, you will self-destruct. Your life will unravel, and guess what? Those friends who you chose will not be there to support you when it does. Also, another point that just needs to be made to young people, please build relationships with older people. This goes a long way in healthy communities, in healthy families, it starts with your grandparents, which is what we're leading into next. But Leviticus 19, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. I've learned by experience that people older than me have lots of stories and lots of insight and lots of experience into things that I've never seen or known before. And I love tapping into that. Thankfully, again, there were some older men when I was younger who took an interest in me and uh, mentored me and spent a lot of time just over coffee and discussing things and discussing problems I was having and giving insight and all of that. Listen, develop relationships with older people. 
Don't turn away from them. Don't just think it's not cool. There are a lot of older people in our church that have so much wisdom and so much wealth to give, and those relationships are so wholesome. And again, that leads to, well, the first of all relationships, grandparents. I'm going to tread really, really softly now and really respectfully because I'm not here. But I do want to encourage you tonight on a few things that are so helpful to people in my age group who are parenting right now and people younger who need you even though they don't think they do. And we need to develop in families healthy, healthy relationships between grandparents and grandkids and so on. First of all, pray for your children and grandchildren. You have a significant and very, very unique place to be able to pray and to tap into the powerhouse of God and pray uh, that your children and grandchildren will, uh, will be navigating life to the glory of God. Paul says, Ephesians 6, praying at all times in the spirit. You may be saying tonight, well, I'm too old to be a soldier for Jesus Christ. Nobody listens to me anymore. Um, you know, I, 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 I've lost relevance of the culture and so on. Whatever it might be, you might be thinking that. But it's not true. And Paul says one of the things that we can do, all of us, doesn't matter, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. I met a lady this week that was just like this. You could tell just from talking to her for just a few moments, for a few minutes, that this was a prayer warrior. I was in the room with a spiritual giant who knows what it is to speak to God. Grandparents can leave a legacy this way of praying for the next generation. It's a focus. It's not like King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah learned the judgment of God was coming, but not in his lifetime. And he said to himself, oh, good, as long as it doesn't happen to me in my lifetime. No, we need an older generation that is looking to the next generation and leaving a legacy behind that will be lasting. Secondly, and this one again, I say very softly, but encourage rather than criticize or control. I think it is easy, and I'm already feeling it. I'm not that old, but I'm old enough. I'm in my 40s to start feeling just that instinctive criticism that can come up very quickly, judgmental of another generation coming behind. And you know, millennials know nothing of commitment and we can start going down the stereotypes and things like that. And I have to keep myself in check. And I can't imagine that as I go further on in the walk of faith and be where you're at, if you are a grandparent or at that stage now, that it can be very easy to look back on another generation and say, they're doing it all wrong or to try and control. Winston Churchill tried to do this at the end of his life. It was actually portrayed in um, uh, The Crown. Uh, when he messed up, he, he first hid his stroke because he didn't, wanna, he didn't want someone else taking power. And then the whole thing that happened with the smog incident and so on, I thought, I thought it was just Hollywood being hard on a good guy until I found out it was actually true. And what historians have said is that if Winston Churchill had just stepped back 
and actually allowed some of the younger men to take that place of power and influence them, influence them. Rather than try and control the situation, he would have been far more effective in his later years. So the encouragement is uh, to, to take this time to encourage the next generation. Seek to be positive with them. Seek them to push them forward. 2 Timothy 1, verse 3, Paul, an older man, speaking to Timothy, a younger man, saying, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you, you, Timothy, constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Be an encourager. And the last one, influence. Influence by your example. Philippians 3, Paul leaves an influence. Not that I have already obtained this. And I love this. When I see older Christians who are not looking back at the good old days and saying, you know, back there were all my spiritual victories, but they're actually pressing forward, learning more, moving deeper in their walk with Christ and never quite satisfied of knowing him as I know him now, but I want to know him more. I want more of Christ in my life. When I see that, I'm just like, I want to get old like that. I want to die like that. I don't want to grow stale and cold and dry up. Influence, like Paul, who said, I have al- not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made, had, has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind all the victories and all the failures, but straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Be an influence. Moving from a position of power to a position of influence on the next generation. This goes with encouragement, but it's even deeper. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous preacher back in the 20th century in London, England, he moved from when he was in his older years, he, he realized there's a whole generation coming up behind me. And instead of preaching, he started getting more into his books and started actually reading through a lot of his transcripts from his sermons and writing them out into books. And we have volumes today of Martin Lloyd-Jones's sermons, really, his teaching in written form because for those last years of his life, he focused on his written work, not so he could be famous or anything else, but so that he could influence generations to come. And he's still influencing generations to come with his writings. That's an example that we can follow. And so wherever we are in our role as families, we have a role to play. We have a priority tonight in the family. You want to be countercultural. Focus on the family and do what you can in your sphere, wherever that sphere is. Do what you can to fulfill your role to the glory of God. 